Good morning. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the Cato Institute's uh, Hayek Auditorium two of my favorite scholars, uh, Jonah Goldberg and uh, Deirdre McCloskey. I'm particularly pleased that Jonah uh, could join us today. It is his birthday, so happy birthday, Jonah, and many, many more. Happy birthday. Mazel tov, indeed. Jonah is a syndicated columnist, author, and political analyst, and a commentator. He's also the ASNES Chair of Applied Liberty at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Jonah was the founding editor of the National Review Online and writes a weekly column about politics and culture for the Los Angeles Times. In 2019, he became the founding editor of The Dispatch. He wrote the number one New York Times bestseller, Liberal Fascism. He also wrote The Tyranny of Clichés and Suicide of the West, which also became a New York Times bestseller. As an avid reader of uh, Jonah's writings, especially his weekly G-File, um, I should mention that it's from Jonah that I borrowed the wonderful term Weltschmerz, a feeling of melancholy and world weariness that seems to be prevalent throughout much of the Western world today. I should also clarify that we will, what we will mean by liberalism um, during today's discussion. Uh, I will, of course, refer to the original or classical meaning of liberalism rather than the contemporary American understanding of liberalism, which is to say progressivism, that Jonah criticizes in his writings. And speaking of classical liberals, I'm uh, very pleased to welcome Deirdre McCluskey. Uh, Deirdre is currently the Adam Smith Fellow uh, here at the Cato Institute. She is the Distinguished Professor Emerita uh, of Economics and History and Professor Emerita of English and Communication at the University of, uh, of Illinois at Chicago. She has written 24 books and some 400 academic and popular articles on economic theory, economic history, philosophy, rhetoric, statistical theory, feminism, ethics, and law. Mikulski's recent books include her famous trilogy, The Bourgeois Virtues, the Bourgeois Dignity, and Bourgeois Equality. Uh, she is also the author of Why Liberalism Works and with Art Carden, Leave Me Alone and I Will Make You Rich. Let me begin today's discussion by quoting from Francis Fukuyama's famous uh, 1989 essay, The End of History. In that essay, Fukuyama acknowledged the triumph of liberal democracy and free enterprise, but warned, quote, the end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that will call forth daring, courage, imagination, and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. I can feel myself a powerful nostalgia for the time when history existed. Such nostalgia, in fact, will continue to fuel competition and conflict even in the post-historical world for some time. Perhaps in this very respect, perhaps the prospect of centuries of boredom at the end of history will serve to get history started once again. Well, um, we are living in historical times again, so let me begin with the following question. Deidre and Jonah, when the Berlin Wall crumbled, did you think that liberal democracy and free markets have triumphed for good? What did, what did you imagine the world would look like a generation after the collapse of communism? thought one way or the other. I mean, I, I, um, I was glad communism fell. Um, and uh, I, 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 I'm such an optimist 
you don't change gender if you're not an optimist. Uh, that, I, that I just assumed things would get really nice and everyone would be, would be liberal in the correct sense into the future. I just love uh, Frank's um, <laughs> uh, vision of boredom. There's, an English, there's a Swiss-English writer, I forget his name, from Zurich, who says that his home, his home city has the great virtue of being boring and bourgeois. <laughs> and that's kind of what we want, don't we? Boring and bourgeois. I was a, I, as, a, as a young person, I was a socialist. It took me a long time to escape from it. And arise, you prisoners of starvation. It was just so exciting, as, as Frank says. But boy, excitement <laughs> has its downside. How about it? What's your view? Yeah, so I, I, I'm sort of with you. I mean, at the time, um, you know, I was in college when the wall came down, and I was living in Prague in 91 when things really sort of finally came to an end. And um, to be honest, like, I thought less about the uh, moving into the uh, sunny uplands of permanent liberalism than I thought about the vindication of you know, people like my father who took anti-communism really very seriously. Yes. And, um, and, and seeing how, uh, seeing the vindication of that cause without horrible bloodshed, sure. um, without uh, um, the sort of apocalyptic end of the Cold War that I was raised on. I mean, I, it's very difficult for people who aren't from my generation to remember just how we were drenched in, uh, you know, if you think kids have been told to be terrified of climate change, you know, have them watch some of the after-school specials about nuclear bombs going off in, you know, Cincinnati or whatever. Put um, your head between your legs. All that stuff, yeah, yeah. So duck and cover. My building in New York had a, had a nuclear fallout shelter in it uh, to plan on that stuff. And so, but on this boredom point, I, I think I'm with Deirdre on this to a certain extent. I like the Fukuyama book a great deal. Um, I think he's got, I think Frank Fukuyama's got a really raw deal in the way people make fun of him without actually understanding the argument. Um, uh, I think he was basically right in the sense that we have not come up and probably will not come up with a better understanding of how to organize human society than yes. liberalism broadly understood. So in that sense, sort of like in Calvin Coolidge's Fourth of July speech, um, the propositions of the Enlightenment and the liberalism are final because they cannot be improved upon. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the only criticism I have about that boredom thing is that that, that understanding of boredom is really a very elite understanding yeah of boredom, the, the history of intellectuals who want to have the holes in their souls filled up by great ideological causes. Yes. Um, I'm not ascribing that to Fukuyama, per se, but it's, he's working within that framework. Most people actually don't want, you know, at least historically, to be swept up as cat and father in great historical context of isms. They want 
what is they want to they want satisfaction in their own lives. They want what is good for their family. They want uh, personal earned success. And this idea that somehow we're losing something profound when millions of people fought under the banners of bad ideas yeah. uh, doesn't entice me as much as it does for a lot of people. But of course, they can be swept up, and as sure. you're pointing out, they, they often, they sometimes are, in the aestheticization of politics. Whereas uh, the kind of boring Zurich world that Frank is, is talking about is only boring in its in its in its politics. Right. Right. It can be very nice in its art. The real this, 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 you 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 can find meaning. The answer to the question so what? Right. In something other than uh, communists and uh, f fascists um, fighting on the streets of Weimar. Right. I mean the 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 sound of one hand clapping that you get from peaceful, prosperous countries that don't appear in for chapters and chapters in history books yeah. because of all the bloodshed. It doesn't, it doesn't, like Switzerland, it doesn't mean that the people in those pages, those pages that were not written because there wasn't enough interesting stuff for a historian to write about, yeah. were having miserable lives. Absolutely. They were having perfectly fulfilling lives. Um, it just, it was not legible to the sort of historical, intellectual craft of of finding inflection points in history yeah, yeah. and contests of great ideas. And I like contests of great ideas, but I, only in the sense that I want the right ideas to win. I don't yeah. like it for the substance, you know, for the, just the, the thrill of the combat itself. For the itself. fun. Right. How fun it is <laughs> to throw a Molotov cocktail or, or kill Ukrainians. Tolkien decorum is propatria mori, right? See, si. yeah, that's right, exactly. Now, I, of course, grew up on the other side of the Iron Curtain, so in my primary school days, we used to march through the forests and throw apples. Uh, instead of hand grenades, you know, thinking about <laughs> killing <laughs> the likes of you. <laughs> but um, there is a, um, I think it's, uh, it's suicide in, uh, of the West. Maybe the last sentence in your book says something along the lines of, uh, when you are on top of a hill or on a mountain peak, it doesn't matter which way you go, you're going down. Right. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong about it, the way I interpret it is that you have sort of embraced the Fukuyamish notion that, um, with which we agree, that liberal democracy and uh, free markets are the best way to, to accomplish uh, peace, human flourishing, and, and, uh, and, and, and prosperity, which raises the obvious question, um, if that's the peak, what explains the current uh, bout of Western self-doubt and perhaps even self-hatred? Where does it come from? Yeah, um, and just for this peak thing, my only point is is that I'm not a huge horseshoe theory of political science guy, but you can see these arguments on the left and the right where people are basically arguing for the same thing just under different flags, right? So it's, it's, it's crony capitalism stuff, it's picking winners and losers, it's statism, it's protectionism, but for my team, not for your team. Um, and my point is whether you talk about whether we want to go left or right, if you're at the top of a mountain, left and right become less interesting directionally because the real point is you're going down, yeah. back to where you came. Yeah. And there's an enormous amount of reactionary stuff going on on both sides of, of politics. I have, I have a lot of different theories. I think where the Weltschmerz comes from, and, and my favorite 
understanding of the term Weltschmerz isn't just world weariness or world pain. It's the disconnect between the idealized version of what you think, the utopian version of what you think the world should be and the realization of what it is and that, the pain that that causes. And I think, I mean, I could, I could, I could run through a, a bunch of different explanations. I think one of the things that I think gets the le less, less attention than it deserves is, like, I am entirely with Deirdre on the importance of innovation um, and protecting innovation and all of that. But innovation often comes with, especially innovation in communication, mass sort of populist dislocations. The printing press and the Reformation, uh, 1930s radio created all sorts of populism. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that that we can't handle in terms of uh, adapting to it if we've got time. And part of the problem I think we're dealing with in the last 20 years is the pace of communications changes far outstrip our ability to absorb it and to accommodate and, be, and, and, and create new institutions to deal with it. Yeah. And I'm very much a Marshall McLuhan guy in this one regard, is that I think a lot of social media, and media generally, um, has a profound effect on the kinds of ideas that are popular. And uh, social media rewards mobbish politics and mobbish ideas, anti-democratic ideas, ideas that preference passion over reason, ideas that uh, uh, privilege uh, uh, sort of instinctual responses rather than considered ones, ideas that carve out nuance in favor of bright lines. And, um, and I think we're, we are living with the consequences of that. I've long been a critic of populism, but I think we are now sort of institutionalizing in our technology in our, and in our society, populism on a scale that we haven't seen before. Having, having ma mentioned Marshall M McLuhan in, in the style of, what is it, Annie Hall, he will now come out and, and agree <laughs> with you. Say, yeah, boy, that's exactly my theory. Um, German, I'm told, has a lot more terms for emotions of various kinds. And, uh, um, Weltschmerz is one of them, um, but they're emotions, and <laughs> I think it's our job, the three of us and you too, to try to get people on the on the sensible side of the of this street. In which case, to change the metaphor, you don't need to go downhill. You can just stand there on the peak of the hill right. and say, "Look, I tell with it." I, I say it's spinach. I said, "Hell, we aren't going to go down either of these uh, either of these ways." But I I, I completely agree that <laughs> I had had an interesting talk with an entrepreneur who does computer um, uh, tricks. I, I can't get more witchcraft. Just <laughs> witchcraft. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he and I said, "Are you in, in trouble with regulation?" He says, "No, no, I'm not, because I'm smarter than they are. <laughs> I keep making innovations so fast that right. they can't catch up with me." And in a way, our our conventional way of thinking about uh, um, uh, these uh, about politics is so static. It's always supposed to be the French Assembly in you know, 1830 or something, always left and right. Right. 
and always simple, and then we can decide which side of the hill to go down. And it, 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 so I'm, I, I'm not what uh, I can con conclude this intervention. I'm more optimistic, I think, than you are. Maybe I, long term, I'm optimistic. I mean, but, but so dear, I mean, this is sort of the how to put. So I think we both agree uh, that liberal democratic capitalism, whatever you want to put the label on, right, um, of free markets, free minds, all that, um, in the Leonard Reed eye pencil sense, right, yeah, is, yeah. The, is the most uh, uh, cooperative system ever conceived of for maximizing productivity and human liberty and all of these things. Oh, yeah. And I think that the, <laughs> I think the problem is, is that it is so good at being communal that the communal aspect becomes invisible. That's a very good point. It's the, and I, I look, spontaneous orders are hard to see. Right. Language, for example, we're, uh, we're speaking English now, and English is a massive spontaneous order. It's not planned by anyone. Uh, friendship is a spontaneous order. Most of art is a spontaneous order. And then we just don't notice. Then we say, well, no, maybe we'd better plan language a bit. Mm -hmm. um, stop people from confusing interest, lack of interest with the word disinterest. Mm -hmm. I think people should be shot if they make that distinction, but <laughs> still. It's, it's the spontaneous order that you can't see. Right, and so, but this is, this is where I think the Fukuyama point comes in, right? Which is that, again, free markets, however we want to label them, are the most cooperative system ever conceived of. The problem is, is that they can't, I hear that all the time from the post-liberal integralists and the nationalists and all these kinds of things who say that capitalism can't, liberal democratic capitalism can't give you Community. Community can't give yeah. you meaning, cause, and they get, they, sometimes they sound remarkably Marxist with the alienation yeah. arguments and all yeah. that kind of, and anomie and all these things. And yeah. my problem is, is like saying, which is a better utensil, a fork or a spoon, mm -hmm. right? I mean, a sp spoon's better for what, what spoons are for. Yeah, forks yeah. are better for what forks are for. I never thought that liberal democratic capitalism was supposed to give people internal meaning. It was supposed yeah, to create right. opportunities for them to find it, but here, how do you deal with, this is the fundamental question I think you're getting, is how do you deal with people who are, or are thirsty for meaning, particularly in an increasingly secular age, and so they're gonna find it in isms and flags and ideas that um, are fool's gold in effect. That's, that's, that's a tremendously large problem in a secular society. Um, Patrick Deneen, Notre Dame is an excellent mm -hmm. example of your, your point. He, he wants us to go back to some sort of theocracy. And he, he thinks that's much a tremendous improvement over the right. mere liberty and, uh, spun, and, uh, and spontaneous orders. A great, ang I'm an Anglican or an Episcopalian, and our great theorist in the late 16th um, century said, man doth seek a triple perfection. So there's a material thing you need to have, and then intellectual understanding of uh, F equals MA, but then man 
humans seek a third thing, which I, I've always understood as the answer to the question, so what, <laughs> in Dutch and new, mm -hmm. and now. And that's lacking. Um, at least people think they lack it. Mm. They actually find meaning in the Chicago Cubs, though I've lost my faith in that <laughs> entirely. George Will goes on believing I don't. Um, or, or it's the it, shakers of, of sports fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They keep, yeah, they, they don't reproduce themselves. So but they, they uh, um, some people find it in the family, which is perhaps the most common of these, mm -hmm. so what, the answer to so what. And fewer and fewer people in our, our country find it in, uh, in God. And, and work, I would suggest. Work, uh, indeed. Uh, so yeah, that's right. the, 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 the debate around the loss of meaning, is, it's a little frustrating because, of course, we have no idea uh, whether lack of meaning in the Western society today is much worse than it was, say, 40 years ago or 60 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, we simply assume that because religion was uh, much more prevalent. But, yeah, if, but if, you, if you think about getting meaning or having meaning in life as, as a way of coping with sort of the biggest existential question, what am I here for, where am I going, okay. then clearly a religion, um, a family, and work have something to do with it. And I wonder, would like you to opine on that, to what extent do you think that this particular problem with the lack of meaning is specifically centered around a group of people, um, your colleague uh, Nick Everstadt talks about the missing men. Mm -hmm the men who are not, no longer in the labor force. Um, so the work is out. Maybe they'll live off welfare checks. Um, assuming that they don't work, their family situation is probably quite broken, if existing at all. Mm -hmm. And if on top of that you take lack of religion, it's clear why people, at least those kinds of people, would be um, pushed toward uh, religious alternatives, be it extreme environmentalist gloomism or yeah. following a, a particularly uh, charismatic political figure. Or what, do you, what do you think or, about that? Or simply going home this afternoon and shooting themselves. Which we don't encourage. No, no, no please don't. <laughs> Put that gun down. Um, yeah, so uh, tying to, to Nick Eberstadt's argument, you know, uh, Yuval Levin has been making an argument that I, I, I found I'm still chewing on, but I think it's very interesting. <laughs> if you look at the, I mean, Claims that society is breaking down are not new. No, um, not at all. And what, 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 the only thing that changes are the metrics that we use yep. to claim society is breaking That's down. That's exactly right. Someone who grew up in uh, the New York of the 1970s, uh, about, tr trash. about a mile from where they shot Death Wish, um, I can tell you that like, the social breakdown arguments had more merit to them in the 70s than they do today. But Yuval makes this interesting observation that a lot of the things that social conservatives in particular we're concerned about in terms of social breakdown in the 70s and 80s um, are improving. We have fewer, uh, fewer out-of-wedlock births, we have fewer um, abortions and all these things, but the problem with the source of those quote-unquote improvements is that it's because people are having less sex. People are, uh, it is a, um, there's a, the, the Japan, Japan, Japanification of the American culture I think has some real merit to it in terms of the sort of entropy that is being encouraged in some ways. I think the sources of this are diverse and we could probably argue about a lot of them, but some of it 
certainly comes from the educational system, which has yeah. this, um, you know, this tendency to um, of, of hyper safetyism, yeah. which I think throws a wet blanket on uh, spontaneity and, and energy and all these kinds of things. Terrifi the terror of hurting somebody's feelings is profound these days, and. Um, and then you also just have, uh, you know, getting back to the guys who, who are just staying out of the workforce. Um, you know, in liberal fascism, I wrote, and I've got some things wrong in liberal fascism, um, but in liberal fascism, one of the arguments I made was that because of American culture, we really didn't have an Orwellian-style sort of uh, Nazi kind of future in our DNA for the same reason that the Italians were as bad as Italian fascism was, it was almost a cartoon compared to German yeah. uh, Nazism because of just the difference in cultures. And I did think that we, I did warn that we could have, a, a, instead of a 1984 Orwellian future, we could have a Huxleyan Brave New World future where we don't have the arguments against having prepackaged joy delivered to us. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to a couple of professors who say that you know, for years they would ask their students whether they would want to have, what is it, the, the Nozick virtual reality, the happiness machine or whatever, yeah. and the kids would always say no, and now a lot say yes. Good God. And you have lots of video games that have incorporated into them uh, the sense of earned success that mimics real success in real life. Yeah. And I'm not one of these crazy anti-video game people, but I do <laughs> think we're creating all sorts of simulcrums of actual engagement in life that allow us to retreat and COVID has made a lot of that worse. Well, but but I, I would as a hist I mean, it, it, if I don't say this, they take my historian union card away from me. <laughs> so I have to say that so it has always been, dear. Um, that um, uh, <laughs> one wonderful example of this is in the book of Samuel, also called Judges in the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> in which the Israelites say to the, the prophet uh, Samuel, we want a king, like all the other places around us. We want a king. We love kings. It would be so great to have a king. And, uh, and so Samuel goes to God, and, and God says, well, OK, if you want a king, you can have a king. But remember, if you have a king, He's going to take away all your freedoms, and your 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 sons are going to be in the army, and your your daughters are going to be terrible, be servants. And they say no. We and so Samuel goes back and he says this. People say no, no. We want a king. We want a king. And they get Saul. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, all that stuff happens. So it, you you can again and again the fall of the Roman. Republic is an excellent example because it had populism, it had Trumps, it had uh, authoritarians, it had smart Trumps. Thank God he's so stupid. But uh, uh, they had smart Trumps uh, like Octavian, who then yeah. took over. I, I, I agree with all of that. I, I think this sort of gets to my point about the pace of technological change. When, when Mark Antony waves the bloody toga, yep. it was defined by a physical space. It was the people who could see him waving the bloody toga. Good point. Now you can literally wave the bloody toga for a billion people That's instantaneously. Right. That's right. And, That's right. and, that is, and one of the things that is done is 
People talk about the failure of institutions, and I think there's a lot to that. Um, but we don't talk enough about how the sort of this Marshall McLuhan point that technology today allows us to work around institutions, right? Yeah. I mean, the vast amount, a vast amount of communication, political communication today is done wholly without a filter of an editor yeah. or a, a responsible institution that can hold a writer back. And instead, it is people vomiting things up directly into the bloodstream. Right. And the measurement of, of success is how angry you make people. Of course, you know, as I don't need to, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again to assure my union card. This happened with the development of the printing press in Germany. Sure. It happened, as you said, or you, one of you said, with 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 radio, with radio in the 1930s and and so on. And um, it, what is missing? And thank God, in the last election, was still there, even with Republican secretaries of state, was was ethics integrity. And one of the most corrosive intellectual developments that we college professors have been responsible for is saying that ethics is just opinion. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really exist. No, don't worry about ethics. All you need is self-interest. This is what my colleagues at, at, at Chicago said mm -hmm. in, in economics. All we need is markets. All we need is self-interest, and that's not true. Markets, art, <laughs> this conversation depends on ethics you learned at your mom's knee. How do you get to common ethics, some sort of a central ethical core well, in a country which is as diverse as ours? I don't mean by that the sort of shallow progressive idea of, of, yeah. of, of uh, diversity, by that I mean uh, that Americans, 330 million of us, I'm an American now, um, have very divergent opinions about what good life is, etc. And plus, the intellectual elites insist that there is no such thing but, as a but, hierarchy of ethical values. But, but observe the reaction to Putin's invasion. With the, with the images being spilled into people's heads unedited, um, observe that 90 percent, I'm not sure what the actual figure is, say, my god, this is awful. It's through our art movies. It's through our experience on CNN or something uh, that, we, that we talk about ethics. And I don't think there's as much diversity in what's good and what's bad as one thinks by talking about the great divisions among the American people. Look, think of 1861. You want to see divisions. Uh, uh, that was much more fundamental than the ones we have now. I mean, look, whether it's ethical to hold a person in slavery or not, split, <laughs> uh, that's a much bigger ethical divergence than uh, most of the ones that people worry about now. So I, 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 I agree with all of that. Um, I do think that the role of elites broadly defined is largely a negative one um, in terms of the ideas yeah. that they are 
they are celebrating, that they're promoting. I mean, I'm now keeping a running file of how many pieces the New York Times and the Washington Post run arguing that uh, freedom as a concept is really a tool of white supremacy. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. you know, which would have been shocking to the people who were the fulcrum of that point, that argument about the ethics of slavery. Right? Or, or would have been shocking to slaves. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, this thing I want is for white supremacy. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, I think that, um, um, you know, the, one of the places where I think libertarians are better positioned, you know, I'm still not a libertarian. Uh, oh, I'm getting closer. On. I'm getting closer come, come, all the time. Please, it's please, what, please. what is it, Parmenides' arrow? You know, you can go <laughs> by half steps. You keep getting closer, but you never get there. Uh, but um, uh, the the you know the thing that distinguish the two things that distinguish libertarians in the last five years with some exceptions, because there are, you know, on the, on the sort of populist side, there are some strange libertarians too, but like the, sort of the Cato style um, libertarians is one is they've always understood that the state can't give you meaning, that the state yeah. can't fill the hole in your soul. Yeah. And uh, the other one is that I think is something that is supremely important and the educational establishment and our elites have really failed on us is this idea that you, I hear it from the left and the right all of the time in various forms, that procedural liberalism mm -hmm. is value neutral. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the great reasons, you know, one of the attacks they have on my colleague David French all the time is they think that like that procedural liberalism are just like the rules of the game and they have no inherent morality to them. Yeah. And I keep making the point, no, no, free speech has an, a deeply moral component to sure it. Sure it does. Um, freedom of association, it's deeply moral, freedom of worship. The right to confront your accuser, yeah. right? The right to be presented with evidence at court. These are things that have been hammered out over millennia mm -hmm. as best practices. And this, this sort of sovereign contempt and disdain that a lot of populists on the left and a lot of pointy-headed progressive intellectuals on the um, uh, right and vice versa have um, for these concepts and simply say they are simply um, value-neutral rules of the game that, uh, you know, uh, that deserve no special deference is profoundly dangerous. Well, I, I have a, I, I, I agree. We, we've, this is sort of an agreement fest because in that's my because field, we are on the right side of history. That's right. We're, we are on the right, the right side. That's, that argument is so strange. The right side of history always turns out to be my right side. But, but um, in economic history, under the influence of Douglas North, and now Ashimoglu is involved in it, and now it's prominent in, in the World Bank. Uh, the theory is that you just pour procedural liberalism onto a country, and you, 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 you give the lawyers white wigs and robes, <laughs> a la English common law, and then miraculously you get English common law wherever you, you, you express it. And now that's a very interesting point you're making because I haven't quite connected the two. These people do believe that it's ethically neutral, that it's just technical. Right. And we're gonna fiddle with, the, and, and they don't see that the reason the Georgia 
election was not totally corrupted by Trump was one man mm -hmm. who said, no, no, sorry, I'm not going to do that. And that comes from an, an ethical agreement. And as, you, and as you're pointing out, it's quite true, that have been, that's been worked out over generations that you shouldn't do that. Right. It's a bad thing to punch a person in the nose. Right. Except in self-defense, right? I mean, we've come up with some rules for oh, these yeah, things. Okay. So but, you know, like the, the Westphalian peace was yeah, yeah. the result of... 1648, dear. Enormous bloodshed where people tried to force yeah, yeah. issues of conscience at the tip of a sword. And it turned out that it was... It just yeah. wasn't going to work, and it was incredibly devastating and destructive. And so yeah. it wasn't like they celebrated freedom of conscience. It was they that did. they said this is the least worst option exactly. to... It was, provide for some modicum of social peace. It was still, it is, he's talking about 1648, the end of the so-called 30 years war. And still in England in the 1690s, it was illegal to be a Unitarian. Newton was a, and Locke mm -hmm. were both secret Unitarians. That is, they denied the divinity of Christ. My word, uh, and and it was still illegal. So it's not that they were modern free speech advocates, right. to put it mildly. And indeed, we uh, we always claim in the United States, oh, the First Amendment, boy, we're we've always been for free speech. Come on, the, <laughs> James Joyce's Ulysses couldn't be sent through the mail. Mm. Until rather recently, in, in 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 Britain, the home of our, our liberties, until the 1960s, there was pre-censorship of plays. You know, come on. So, so it's so this. Uh, yes, the less bad. Right. This isn't working out. We've been killing each other for 30 years, actually longer right. since since. Uh, 1517, maybe we'd better stop doing that, at least digging this hole. Right. Well, so as a conservative, and I'll fly the flag for conservatism a little bit here, I'm a big fan of Chesterton's fence. There's an enormous amount of trial and er Hayekian trial and error yeah. built into all sorts of institutions that we do a terrible job of explaining to people why these institutions exist, why these rules exist. And so you, if you raise a crop of very entitled young people with very little gratitude for the society and the benefits that they've inherited, yeah, yeah. Um, they look at the chest and fence and say, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Let's get rid of free speech because when people say things that I don't like, it hurts me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so the, the need to, forget teaching patriotism. Let's start at like just sort of the very basic things, which is that, these fundamental rules, which generations of people died to bequeath to us, um, not because they were fighting for it, but because we learned lessons from the bloodshed. Yeah, yeah. Teaching the next generation that, you know, I'm sorry if free speech hurts your feelings. Too bad. But within very broad brushwork, framework, that's just the, the rule we've got, you know. Oh, you There's know, also enough, forgive me. Sorry. Well, it's, it's, it's the spontaneous order point. Yeah, there, there's also the assumption that um, when you do have a revolution, when you burn things down, 
out of the ashes of the old social order, something better must That's inevitably right. emerge, right. Right? like Phoenix out of the ashes. That's a very good point. But with the exception, perhaps, of American Revolution and I don't know, many other, uh, maybe some others, uh, revolutions generally have been uh, um, quite devastating and resulted right. in a system which was very often appreciably worse than the one then before, extenuating, in fact, some of the worst features of the previous regime. Right. Well, but, but I think that is a modern, and I'm thinking as a historian, a, a quite modern, well, maybe not quite modern, maybe <laughs> I should get, but anyway, a modern uh, uh, phenomenon. Because many of the reformations, revolts, revolutions from 1517 and 1568 and, and uh, you know the 1640s in England and 1689 and 1776 and even many aspects of 1789 those resulted in the liberal idea mm -hmm. I, I would claim and that's that's getting to the top of the hill um, and, and it didn't happen immediately after all in the United States, we still had the great um, sin of slavery. Um, but, uh, you know, gradually we kept doing, so it, it's the modern revolutions, the French being, the other side of the French Revolution being the first big example, and then, 19, and I, then I, 1917. I, I, you know, never get into a land war in Southeast Asia, never argue with Deirdre McCloskey about the 1500s, but, um, <laughs> I'd push back on that just a little bit in okay, the sense that the, you know, the Protestants brought with, the Protestant Reformation brought with it just incredibly severe, for want of a better term, populism, iconoclasm. Oh yeah, very uh, much so. Uh, uh, censoriousness of, of all sorts of matter. Sure. You know, I have friends who will tell you uh, that, you know, the, the best institution for quashing witch hunts in Europe was the Catholic Church because yeah, yeah. the Protestants, basically, uh, particularly secular lords, um, who uh, were just caving to the mob, yeah, would, yeah they loved it. Would uh, declare people witches all the time, and it sure. took a, they had the Catholic Church would have to send in someone from the office of the Inquisition. Yeah, let's not get into Spain. The other side of the Inquisition. But, um, the good uh, side of the Inquisition. Right, but these <laughs> guys would come in and they would interrogate. They would be like Clarence yeah. Darrow and they would interrogate these false witnesses and say, yeah. so you say she turned into a bat. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. talk yeah. me through that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so... How does that work? <laughs> the, I, think, I, I think where we would agree is, is that, that what you actually want is that spontaneous order which you only get from the conflict of new institutions and old institutions yeah, yeah. and the friction of figuring out where the trade-offs are. Well, there, there, the, the, the famous case in the United States, we act as though it, it's all there was to accusations of witchcraft are the Salem right. trials in the, in the 1690s. And very interestingly, one of the main judges in that, who was condemning people to have stones put on them until they confessed and so on, 10 years later, he was saying, boy, I made a mistake on that. Yeah. And so there, there was a, um, yeah, I, I agree. There, there, there's, there's a good side and a bad side to these um, 
indulgences in popular passions. Yeah, and I, I would argue that cancel culture, broadly defined, and we can have those arguments, is really a modern incarnation of witch hunt culture. Absolutely, and, I have experienced and it mob, as an academic. And, and, and again, social media encourages mob, mobocratic ideas. And yeah, yeah. My favorite is this week, you know, the New York Times, or last, end of last week, New York Times does an editorial modestly calling for some restraint in cancel culture because it's a problem. And uh, I saw one journalistic ethicist or watchdog guy say, first of all, cancel culture is a myth, and second of all, the New York Times editorial board should be fired <laughs> for perpetrating oh, it. It's like, wait a second. No, 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 burned. Burned, that's right. Burned, yeah. burned. So, you know, I, I, I'm involved in this uh, interesting experiment. The... University of Austin to Texas, um, which is an attempt to push back against the, uh, the, the actually I was going to say the strange academic idea that we shouldn't disagree with each other, but you know, actually historically speaking, as I said, you, you, you weren't allowed to say a lot of things in universities even. Right. So we have about 15 minutes left of the conversation before handing it over to Q&A. So let's get a little controversial. Uh, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> um, you talked, uh, John, about social media. And uh, one thing that social media does need is content. Mm. Um, and um, specifically, I'm wondering um, about content relating to how the West the liberal West got to where it is. In other words, how important these battles on social media about how did America get to be where it is today with all of its wealth and so forth, how important is interpretation of Western history? Internal factors such as progressive liberalization, ideas, capitalism, versus external factors, such as colonial exploitation, for example. How important is that um, in terms of understanding the current, the, the, the fissures in American society today? Uh, roughly speaking, if you want to dummy down, the difference between the 1776 and 1619. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think the part of it is, again, this, this privileging of passion over reason um, and, you know, the, 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 the the sovereignty of identity politics, which basically tells it a lot of people that um, they only have one argument essentially yep. available to yep. them. And so sort of like the old thing about if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the number of people who you know, want to make, you know, the conflict in Ukraine about, you know, white supremacy stuff is weird to me. But yeah. like, if that's the only thing you've been sort of trained in and um, that you know how to talk about. Similarly, you know, you can see it in social media, the extent to which when the conversation goes someplace else, some people who don't have anything else to say except that one narrow slice of issues, um, they try to drag it back over, sort of like the guys on CNBC who only want to talk about the stocks they're invested in, you know, they only want to talk about yeah. their book. And so it was funny at the beginning of the Ukraine conflict where you had People like Lauren Bobbert, you know, this horrible congresswoman, you know, talking about, I was reading this tweet, and she was talking about the need for sanctions, about this evil regime, and then it ends with, and that's why we need regime change in Canada. 
And because she wanted to keep talking about the trucker convoy and not about what was going on in, in yeah, Europe. Yeah. And so there's a lot, there is a lot of that. I think that generally speaking, one of the biggest problems is just a, 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 a generational problem of amnesia, of yeah. that these arguments start with the conclusion and people don't know enough about what the past, how yeah. complicated the past was to say, you know, the 1619 project falls apart on its own. Yeah. And the, one of the fascinating things to me about the whole 1619 project controversy is that the best people on it were the socialists. Yeah. Because this ancient debate of class versus race, sure. they were like, you are trying to redefine the importance of class issues, Marxist stuff, out of the conversation. And um, so I. You know, I, in Suicide of the West, my core argument is that we should have gratitude for yeah. the miracle, which, which Deirdre has written book about books explaining all the, and um, we just simply do not teach gratitude as a cultural priority. Yeah. We teach a sense of entitlement. We teach a yeah, sense of re right. resentment. We think that that's authentic and that yeah. gratitude is fake or dumb. And, yeah, yeah. and again, social media is really good at, what? Popularizing those arguments. I, I, I'm a trans, a trans woman, as, as the as the terminology goes. And I was asked to sign the Harper's letter a couple of years ago, which had this bromidic, shall we say, <laughs> assertion that free speech is nice. Have you yeah. noticed? <laughs> and and we and I and I signed it, and so did R.K. Rowling, uh -huh. the novelist who's been captured by. The Terps, the trans exclusionary radical feminists, and um, Noam Chomsky. And I disagree with both of them, with, with uh, Rowling on, on trans issues and how terrified she is that someone who is, has XY genes might be in the bathroom, uh, um, and, and, and about Chomsky, whom I uh, debated a few summers ago on more or less everything, even his linguistics. Um, and then I was asked to explain how this could be. I mean, you're, you must, you know, and all three of us signed it. We're all in favor of free speech. And people said, no, wait, how can you be in favor of her free speech right. or his free speech? And, you know, duh. <laughs> free speech is free speech. Sticks and stones may hurt my, break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And that, that ethic has been lost. And it's very strange that, yes, we've created a lot of, um, I don't like to use this term, but I'll say it because it's a nice shorthand. We've created an awful lot of snowflakes. Mm -hmm. And they're, oh, yeah, you said something. Oh, and one point on that, which is, that I draw the line at physical violence. And there's, there's an extension of hurt that says, well, no, come on, I get hurt when you say you're a man. Someone, someone here may feel that way. And I have XY genes, so it hurts me when you, when you say that. But you know, as long as you're not going to get the state to come in and um, uh, uh, you know, as in, in Texas, declare the parents of a transgender child as, uh, as child abusers and physical violence. To call something verbal rape 
is really nasty because it devalues the actual physical rape. And the, but, that, but one of the problems with the sort of technocratic, ethics-free age that we're in is, and you see this argument all over the place, is that har harmful words cause the same reaction in our brains as yeah, physical yeah, violence. Well, and, how nice. Which I think is nonsense. I, you know, I and, think it's complete nonsense. And even if it were true, my response to that would be, so what? Yeah, yeah. You know, because, yeah. uh, and so, but you have this, um, uh, this idea, which I, I do think, I, I, we should be clear about this, I really do think a lot of this is an elite phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. that, uh, you know, 75% of Americans don't tweet. Um, uh, I don't tweet. On any given night, 330 million Americans are not watching Tucker Carlson. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean elites don't matter. Because no, no. elites are the ones who shape what the, what is, what, what, you know, the way institutions are going to raise the next generation, yeah, yeah. the way to frame, the way we frame debates. And so it is, and besides, what else are we going to do except argue with elites? Because sure, that's, that's because this is that's the life we have we chosen. Do. We're doing <laughs> it right now, dude. Right. And, um, but, uh, you know, I do think getting to your point about Ukraine, it tells you something really heartening yeah. that faced with just the plain facts of real events, yeah. an enormous number of people who thought that they had legions of followers who were pro-Putin yeah, yeah. discovered that the pro-Putin stuff was basically entertainment and not a core conviction. Yep. And it's been enjoyable to watch some of the sort of nationalist right guys try to figure out how to get back their audience because yeah. most normal people, regardless of all other political considerations, see it as a morally black and white issue, yeah. what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, part of the problem is this le left-right um, spectrum. That's the way at least the elite thinks about right. politics. I'm not sure the ordinary people do. It's almost like a game, is it not? I mean, yeah, a game. Uh, they, an, any win for well, the other parties is, is Exactly, a and, and the sport, to, to, to speak to your point about a single style of argument that then takes over everything, sports talk, which men learn when they're, <laughs> when, when they're boys and then they go on doing it their whole life. Men learn, at least in the United States, to argue about everything in terms of sports. And the trouble is that the economy is not a sport, mm -hmm. <laughs> for example. It's not a zero-sum game. Right. Um, uh, neither is international relations a zero-sum game. Last question um, for both of you and then uh, Q&A. Um, are you surprised to what extent history and um, interpretation of both American history and your Western European history, both being sort of synonym, if you will, for, for liberal societies, successful liberal societies. Are you surprised how, how important it is in, in, in the current American well, debate? Yeah. And then is there anything that Western liberal democracies can be proud of? And finally, what is the basis for the Western regeneration? Well, you know, I, I once taught at Iowa. I taught in the history department and economics, and I would teach what we used to call Western civilization from 1648, that same date, <laughs> to the present, the second half of what now you can't call it Western civilization. People get angry at you. But I taught it to 430 um, involuntary um, Iowa 
University of Iowa undergraduates in a big hall. And I, I shaped it with narrative in mind. Of course, it's a history course. You're, you're telling a story. And, the, and, and I told them, look, dears, and I tried to not just tell but show, you can tell the story of European history from 1648 to the present as a tragedy if you end with the Holocaust, so to speak. You say, look, here's the arc, and here's where it ends. But you can also tell it as what we call in the English department a comedy, namely it ends in a marriage and happiness, um, if you tell it economically. Because, they're, because right in the middle of all this was the great enrichment, a 3,000% increase in the access of average people to goods and services. And, and what I want people, what I want my colleagues in history to do is to tell both stories, and maybe a third or a fourth one, so that the kids get the idea that narrative is not, well, I, I, suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is history is not simple, that it's, 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 it's a story we tell. And we tell a new one in every generation. The 1619 Project is an attempt to tell the history of the United States as being all about slavery. Strange that they don't say the same thing in Brazil. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I, I think th I'm not sure you can get 18-year-olds to have that level of sophistication. But maybe when they're a little older, they'll remember it and know that history is not open and shut. And that, and that is an essentially liberal idea. Yeah, and it's picking up on that liberal idea, I mean, I'm, I'm still sufficiently Whiggish um, that I think that the, the story of human civilization that be begins 300 years ago with the great fact and, and, and the stuff that Deirdre has written about is an incredibly important story. Um, but I also think, you know, Western civilization is, is a story of, it's a lot of different stories, but the, the through lines are thing, the themes that I think we should teach people are themes that we should be able to be proud of. Yeah. And that, and the whole, like, so for example, in the context of the 1619 Project stuff, I think it's just bad factually. It is. The way I that story. But I have no problem, it drives me crazy when, crazy when people say if you're opposed to critical race theory, you don't want to teach about slavery. That's ridiculous. Of course you want to teach about slavery. It was, you know, it was an enormously important thing in American history, and it's an enormously important thing to be ashamed of in American history. Sure. But part of the reason why you want to teach about things like slavery is to teach about how we got rid of it. Yeah and why it was so important to get rid of it, and why that was so unusual in human history to get rid of it. Why and a bourgeois capitalist society got, got rid, of, rid it. of it. Yeah, and, so, and you, can't, you can't talk about the good things unless you teach about the bad things. Yep. And, um, and, and so I, I, I think, you know, again, putting on my conservative hat, I, I think one of the problems we definitely have in our culture is a lack of civilizational confidence. Um, I think, not to get too eggheady on this, but you know, the argument that Schumpeter makes borrowing from Nietzsche about uh, the use of resentment to demonize um, you know, 
certain concepts, you know, so like, you know, in, in, in Nietzsche and, and Schumpeter's telling, or Nietzsche's telling, you know, the, the old consumption, the old understanding of bravery and chivalry and, and strength were undermined by the priests who talked up the reverse, and that's how you get Christianity. I'm not arguing yeah, yeah, that I yeah. agree with that, but you look around our politics today, and like as I was referencing before, the number of people who write serious op-eds and essays about how freedom is bad. Yeah. It's the exact same technique. You take the things that are most valued by a culture, and you say, and you try to flip them on their head and say, these things are not good, they're actually bad. Yeah, yeah. And that technique is becoming routinized in intellectual circles as shtick. And my hope is, is that because once you, once you turn stuff into shtick, people get bored with it. Yeah. And that's why I'm a long-term optimist, because I think a lot of this stuff yeah. is going to run its course. And at the end of the day, as Edmund Burke says, example is the school of mankind, and it will learn it in another. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that authoritarian regimes suck at taking care of their own people. You look at the frailty and weakness of Putin's Russia, um, it turns out it was a Potemkin village, to, so to speak, in terms of its military might, because authoritarian regimes that don't have the kind of institutional and ethical backstops yep. tend to be corrupt um, and, 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 and fragile. They could be strong, but strong like marble in the sense uh, that yeah. they're also brittle. Yeah, 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 and yeah. over time, I think Western civilization is once again going to demonstrate that, yeah, you can have problems with everything in Western civilization, but... You know, compared to the other ones, it's pretty damn good. And that's what the current invasion is showing. That I, I, Look, if the only way that Putin can stay in power is to jail 15,000 people and to, uh, uh, and to invade other countries and to make up uh, fairy tales, who has won? Right. Um, I, I promised to hand it over to, to, to the audience, but I can't resist. One more question. Um, um, since I have two of my favorite scholars here, so uh, how you perceive, so we all agree that Western history is very complicated. It has its pluses, it has its minuses. But how you decide to, what you decide to focus on is a choice. It is. You can look at American history with slavery and say, I feel bad because we ended it in 1860s. Or you can look at American history with slavery and say, I feel good because Vermont and other northeastern states abolished slavery around 1780, which was the, before anybody else thought of doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it is a choice. So question for the two of you, and then I promise I'll shut up, okay. is why do so many people in Western liberal successful countries choose to look at our culture from that particular perspective? Well, I, look, I, I, I've got a very short answer, which is pessimism sells. If you're, if, you're, if you're selling newspapers, or clicks as we say now, saying the world is coming to an end, and saying it's bad, by the way, it's coming to an end because it's bad, you know, that, that has a long history, mm. is, uh, you know, I write optimistic books. When you write pessimistic books, they sell better. And I wish to God you were, you were it was the other way around, that, that saying, oh, gee, look how wonderful it is, would sell, but it doesn't. Yeah, um, I agree entirely with that. I think that uh, guilt yeah. and shame are, are, which are different things, obviously, but um, are written into the story we tell ourselves about ourselves yes. increasingly, and I think that's shameful. 
Um, I think that uh, um, one of the things that I wish we could focus on more is that, yeah, liberalism is a, is a body of doctrine and ideas and philosophy. It's also a culture. Yes. We have a, just a profoundly liberal culture. We do. And you can have profoundly dif pro profound differences of agreement about ideological matters and all the rest. You still don't want the state telling you what, you know, where you can park and what you can do. And, and, you know, uh, and we lose sight of that when we try to intellectualize a lot of this stuff. Yep. And if we could just sort of say, hey, look, you know, this is something that's fairly, I mean, I'm sure as an immigrant, you notice that America actually has a culture. One of the weird things about American culture is Americans don't think they have a culture. They think, yeah. like, in the same way that fish don't know they're wet, they just think this is the way, like, life is. And then they go to another country and they're like, oh, my gosh, people do things differently. How weird. And uh, teaching Americans that there's nothing, you know, you don't have to get into deep philosophical arguments. Just simply say, this is sort of how we do things here. And um, it's something that we want to celebrate rather than something to be ashamed of. And it's something that one of the great stories of America is how good we are at assimilation, how yeah. good we are about incorporating people into this broadly defined liberal culture. And, um, and if we could celebrate it more, I think that would be a good thing. Most parts of the country have a, have a myth about themselves. The South especially, but, but the West, especially the Mountain West, has its own little ideology. And I come from Boston, and we have our own little ideology. And Garrison Keillor gave the upper Midwest a myth, an ideology about himself, more or less single-handedly. Whereas people from Iowa, where I lived for a long time, or Minnesota, they all thought of themselves, oh, we're just vanilla. We're, we're not anything. We're these fish in the water, and we don't feel it. So I urge you to go back and see episodes of Prairie Home <laughs> so Companion. One point I would add to that, where I thought you were going, is what's interesting, I hadn't thought about this, is basically every region of the country has their own myths you bet. about themselves. All of those myths involve the idea of freedom. They all do. Right? I mean, whether oh, it's the boy. flinty yeoman, you know, Absolutely. Yankee in, in, in Vermont, or it's the idea right. of letting right, the right. flag fly in California. It's all about freedom. One more story about Montana. In the, uh, uh, for a, a, a European tourist in the 1880s somehow got all the way to Montana without talking to very many Americans. I think he was from France. And, he, and he, he came up to a guy in Montana and said, who is your master? <laughs> and the guy said, he ain't been born yet. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. OK, let's open it to Q&A. Uh, please be so kind. Come up to the microphone. Um, tell us who you are uh, and uh, state your question in a form of a question. The mics are right up here are the in front. Mics. So, They're here, so yeah, please. come down yeah, to the yeah. mics. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. And when we say, tell us who you are, we don't really mean like your full place in the universe, <laughs> just you know, your name or whatever. It, it's it's <laughs> sufficient, yes. Retired economist. Uh, question for you, because uh, you mentioned Schumpeter. How, do you, how would you rank Schumpeter's uh, argument that uh, capital, the, the danger with capitalism is that it is so successful, yeah, yeah. people are liable to take it for granted? Right. Go, to, go, to my, go to my website, deirdremccluskey.org. And I've got an essay about 
Schumpeter there, a long essay. And about his 19, famous 1942 book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And he, he, just, he, he loved Marxism, <laughs> but he loved what he called capitalism too. And he wanted to be clever about both of them. So he wanted a kind of ironic distance from both of them. So he, so he joined what most intellectuals, most of these, this elite thought in the 1942, ca capitalism was finished and so was, so was liberalism, socialism was the future. I think history sh proved him spectacularly wrong. Yes. So anyway. I, I, I agree and disagree on that. I, yep. I think Schumpeter, so the argument that you're referring to, and I, I, by the way, the essay that, that you're just talking about is great. It's very useful. Um, yeah. um, I think I think Deirdre's right that in a more or less free market economy, Schumpeter was wrong about the economics, which yeah, is yeah. your point. But he had, and, and at this point, you concede in that essay, he had a point about the sociology. Yeah, she did. And the children of and grandchildren of the the titans of industry. Um, tend to be sort of uh, very left-wing, very corporatist, um, very sort of uh, 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 anti-bourgeois in all yeah. sorts of different ways. I mean, I'm speaking in grotesque generalizations, but um, um, you know, the first generation of kids become lawyers, the second generation you know, basically become spoken word poets or something, yep. right? And, um, and they get, and, and as, as Deidre points out in that essay, the the people pulling up the paving stones in 68 in Paris yeah. um, were not uh, construction workers. They were bourgeois children of the elite. Lenin came from a, you know, a, a, a yes. comparatively prosperous family. Most revolutionaries yeah. do not come from the masses. They come from this coterie of bourgeois intellectuals, yeah. and they practice this politics of resentment that Schumpeter gets from Nietzsche. And my basic take on that is the sociology won't be a problem so long as we keep the economics right. Yeah. But like with you have with the, the closing of the Golden Book in Venice, where people always want to be members of an arist a permanent aristocracy. Sure. And if you create politics that let them do it, they'll do it. And so yeah. you need to keep the economy dynamic and innovative to prevent those people from actually getting the monopolies that they're trying to get. Let's go to Mustafa. Thank you, Mustafa Akil from Cato Institute, and thank you so much for this delightful conversation. Just a little thought. I think to all those people who think a free society like America is oppressive and they should run either towards right or left, they should get a better sense of the world out there, right? Yeah. The alternatives. And I think newcomers to America can help them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because for, I mean, I've seen people say, before Cato, I was in Wellesley College for a little bit, and I was told that students want safe spaces. And I said, I have never seen any place safer than this in my life. <laughs> I mean, in the world I come from, that's broadly Middle East. I mean, you will be unsafe because they will kill you, torture you, bomb you, and sure. I mean, you're offended by some words or things like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just giving that maybe newcomer perspective to those people sometimes can be helpful. Yeah, yeah I, I, I completely agree to Mustafa is a great voice for a liberal Islam. And uh, you can either get that perspective 
geographically, so to speak, or, or historically. Yeah, Seymour Martin Lipset, used to, who was one of my favorite eggheads, uh, used to say, if you only know one country, you don't know any country. That's right. For this fish don't know their wet thing. If you, right. if you don't know how people do something by comparison in another country, you really can't appreciate that some of the things that we do here are not normal. They're socially constructed quirks of culture. And yeah. Yeah. I agree. It would be better if we could teach people more of that perspective. So I'm, hear, I'm, I'm delighted hear, to see, yes, hear, I'm, I'm about to. I'm just going to say that uh, we, I'm delighted to see how many people want to ask questions. So let's make questions and answers quicker so that we can get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're to give long lectures. Um, yeah, what um, you were largely discussing about social media really reminded hey, me. Can you speak, uh, could all of uh, you speak closer to the microphone? Think of rock music. Hello. Um, it largely reminded me about Tocqueville's ideas on social death. Um, and kind of along that line, I was wondering if um, you could uh, answer the question of whether you think that kind of Tocqueville's idea on social death or like self-censorship is more dangerous to Western liberal democracy or the increasingly blurred lines between um, news centering around passion over news centering around reason on social media. Because I know you, um, you largely mentioned that they're both dangerous to a Western liberal democracy, but I was curious which one you would think poses more of a threat. Good. Yeah, I think the question is, 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 is self-censoring more dangerous than um, mob passion kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, Orwell has this line in Politics English Language where he says, a man can be a failure and take the drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. Um, I don't know that you can really tease out one or the other because one is a consequence of the other. Um, but I think that, generally speaking, uh, the culture, a culture that is responsive to uh, sort of the politics of the mob is going to be inevitably self-censorious, and that's going to reward more mob behavior. So it's catalytic, I guess would be my short answer following my instructions. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Please. Close. So hello, my name is Juan from the, I'm an intern here at the uh, Defense and Foreign Policy Department. My question is, uh, what would be your answer as a libertarian or libertarian-ish scholar to the claim by, made by part of the right and the left that it is the atomization of society or the radical individual, individualization of society emerging from the fading or the collapse of, collect, of yeah. collective uh, moral ethical structures like religion? Uh, what, has, what has brought about this very lack of mojo or meaning yeah, yeah, of the West? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, I, I answer, as you said, that actually this claim of alienation, right, coming from the market is ridiculous. That, that the market is an occasion for um, making friends, even, and is not corrosive of community. And you only think so if you don't understand, uh, don't understand communities. If you think that communities always have to be made top down by priests, say, then you're going to think, oh, God, it's terrible. But it's not. It's wrong. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do think that technology is something different and apart from the market and the changing nature of technology and its role on people does create some of this alienation and, and all that, in part because it just simply allows people 
to work without the kind of communal institutions that they once did. Yeah. And institutions are tools, and they're supposed to be there to, to solve a problem. If you could have robots do your barn raising, which would be a really novel form of Amish behavior, but um, <laughs> you don't need to have the picnic with all your members of your community. Yeah, yeah. And technology, you know, the rise of smartphones and the internet, they have, they have created a real problem for those Berkey and Little platoons to, to, to thrive. I don't think that that's necessarily a black mark against the market, and I also don't know what the solution to that is other than to muddle through and go forward. Yes, please. Uh, hi, I'm James Spiller. I'm, hi. Uh, I'm, I'm nobody. Um, I did not have uh, Trump as a modern Augustus on my bingo card. Um, if world weariness means that we're bored and seeking conflict and great causes, why would opportunities to fight glamorous and righteous ideological battles arise, such as joining the Free Syrian Army or the Ukrainian Foreign Legion? Do so few Americans sign up? There's 3,000 out of 300-something uh, you know, million. Yeah. And particularly libertarians. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They, they, uh, putting your money where your mouth is is a serious matter. <laughs> and I'm, I'm amazed. I, I'm not amazed at how few there are. I'm amazed at how many there are who've gone to train, you know, former, um, uh, former staff sergeants who've gone to train people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would also just add that uh, there's a pretty well-established finding in the social science data that says a lot of people are full of shit. <laughs> and uh, they talk a big game. You understand game. that's a scientific finding. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they talk a big game about these kinds of things, but when actually put to the test, yeah. they don't want to be inconvenienced. I mean, I can't tell you as a conservative who's lived in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, how many people I've met who've told me that, you know, Things have gotten so much worse. Uh, modernity is bad. I would be better off living, you know, in a in a hovel in the woods with my family <laughs> and and all these sorts of things. There was actually just recently a book that I reviewed for the Dispatch, uh, which argues essentially that people were happier and better off as serfs 800 years ago. <laughs> and um, and yet, I very rarely encounter any of the people making these arguments or touting these arguments who actually sell all their worldly possessions and head off into the woods. Right. Um, and I think what, part of what you're getting at is, and part of the problem that we have is that uh, we, and it gets to the previous question as well about this technology stuff, is we increasingly follow politics as if it's a form of entertainment. Yeah, that's right. And we get confused about whether it's entertainment or real, yeah. the same way that people get confused about sports, what you were referring to earlier. That's right. And um, it causes people to have very confused thoughts and arguments. Jesus said, Give all your money to the poor and follow me. Not too many people followed him. <laughs> uh, hi, thank you. Thank you for your time. My name is Haikun. I'm uh, currently an intern here. Um, I guess my question is like, how much of your political and ideolo ideological leanings do you think both come from your upbringing in a Western society? Like, if you think, if you grew up, let's say, in modern China, do you think you'll still be on the panel arguing for the same values of? common ethics, um, the same values, or, or even have such an optimistic view of you know, the, the history arc of, of Western civilization in, in the US? Well, I, I don't, Great question. I don't think I would have, I would have been a very, very different person. I'm so proud when I went to China, I learned 20 Chinese characters. <laughs> 
but to read the newspaper, you need 3,000. So, you know, that, that. But no, I, I, um, I was, when I was a kid, I was, I was a socialist. You know, the old joke, someone who's not a socialist at 16 has no heart. Someone who's still a socialist at, at 26 has no brain. And I just made it, uh, <laughs> this uh, thing. And, but everyone comes from a family. And families are socialist enterprises. From each according to her abilities, to each according to his need. So every generation needs to be retaught that there that that you can't make a society into a family. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. It's the Hayekian distinction between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Right. Um, I, I, this question, you know, which has been asked over beers among National Review staffers where I was for 20 years for decades, um, is a fun parlor game. But at the end, so like in my heart, I would love to think that if I was born in the Soviet Union, I'd be on the side of the dissidents and all of that kind of stuff. But you never know what kind of institutional responses growing up you will respond to. Doesn't mean I'm wrong about my current positions, because I think I can defend them on reasons other than the providence and serendipity of how, where I was born and when. Um, but one of the core conservative understandings about society, getting to this point that Deirdre was making, is about how you have to, every generation, you have to do this process over again because human nature has no history. Yeah. Um, you know, it was Hannah Arendt who said, every generation, Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. Yeah, yeah, that's and, good. And that's so good. the factory presets that we come into this world with are very much attuned to non-liberal democratic capitalism. If liberal democratic capitalism were purely natural, it would have showed up in the historical record a little more, a little, a little longer ago. Yeah, um, like a hundred thousand years ago. Right. It depends <laughs> on institutions. It depends on lessons learned. It depends on cultural artifacts that are hard to see, yeah. and um, and they're worth defending. Yeah, you're here. Close to the mic. Hi, um, I'm Logan. I am another intern here at Cato. Um, Closer so to the mic. Sorry, is this better? Yeah. Perfect. All right, um, so my question was mostly for Jonah. A lot of this we talked about how the um, institutions were morally good. Now, my worry about this is that our reverence for our institution might unjustly protect them from valid criticism and challenge. How can we respect the value of tradition without being blind to its problems? Sure, that's a great question. The short answer is make arguments, right? Um, like, it, uh, people tell me all the time, you know, if we didn't have a living constitution, you know, women wouldn't be able to vote and slaves wouldn't be free. And I was like, no, actually, you know what we did? We amended the Constitution. Yeah. Um, it didn't, those things weren't read into it. Those were written into it, which is a huge difference. Yeah. Similarly, um, uh, you know, when sometimes traditions can be wrong. Sometimes institutions can be wrong. I don't think right now that our culture lacks for an incentive structure, psychological, educational, institutional, professional, or economic, for rigorously questioning the roles of the institutions that we have, right? In fact, I would argue that one of the problems we have in Western civilization right now is essentially we have an autoimmune disease, 
where our, an our antibodies are actually attacking healthy organs of the body politic as if they are dangerous. And the, the, you know, it is amazing to me how the concept of, whites, of, of, of institutional racism, which was originally conceived of for wholly legitimate reasons to explain why you could have a dis disparate outcomes, even though there was no racist intent, has now morphed into this idea that all these institutions are just simply racist. Yeah. And um, I think that, that you make a perfectly good point, and the, question, and the way you deal with the, the, that danger is to ask questions and have arguments. But uh, the spirit of populism and, and, and the mob are ill-suited to have those arguments in a productive way. I can't tell you how many people I know who say, you don't understand, you know, you know, voters are angry, or the base is angry. And I was like, okay, I get that, they're angry. How many great decisions have you ever made while you were just blindingly angry? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so a little less passion would be helpful. Yes. Uh, so two quick observations from your comment about uh, the lack of gratitude, needing more gratitude. Uh, and it's part of our political culture, the problem. Uh, one, anybody on the left uh, who is probably going under behavioral health care knows gratitude is incredibly important uh, to, to growing out of that problem. On the left, or on the right then, I see nationalism as misplaced gratitude. Uh, so my question is then, what, uh, what lesson could the left teach the right and the right teach the left about gratitude in our own American culture? That, by the way, I'll let yeah. you answer it, but, but that's a good structure for a really liberal society. Namely, that we don't shut, up, shut our ears when our friends on the left, or our enemies for that matter on the left or the right, are talking, that we listen. By the way, it's wonderful that the, the Cato Institute is located between a statue of Edmund Burke, which across the street, Another statue of uh, Sam um, Gompers <laughs> and K Street. <laughs> I just love this. <laughs> um, I, I guess my short answer, because I know I'm filibustering, is the right could teach the left that um, this is a fundamentally decent country that has made mistakes, but that it, on the whole, its desire to fix it mistakes, make it an outlier in human history and something that, you know, and that we, there's plenty in our history we should be very proud of in part because it's the overcoming of the, the mistakes that were passed on institutionally. Going to the person's last question. The, the left could explain to the right that, um, that the people that the right often disagrees with this, disagrees with, are not existential enemies. Yeah. That, you know, there's, the concept of diversity can be overblown and, and cartoonish at times, but at the end of the day, uh, teaching people that a certain openness towards people who disagree with you or who look different than you um, is a sign of, of strength for the culture and that you shouldn't be terrified of people. Of course, the right and left could learn some of these lessons themselves because we now have lots of people on the right who think the history of America, going to sort of the Patrick Deneen point, that we took a wrong turn in 1600 or something. And you have lots of people on the left who are all in favor of diversity so long as, it's, as you agree with them on everything. Yeah. And so these are lessons Americans need to learn um, or relearn rather than just simply the two sides that are loyal to the seating chart of the French Assembly. Right. Um, this will be the last question. I'm very sorry, but that's all we have the time for. So please go ahead. Hi, I'm Ted Rosner. I'm currently an intern at Cato on the 
development team. And so my question is, how do you think the West can work with different organizations such as the UN and the World Bank and other countries as well to put an end to the Russian and Ukraine conflict? Oh, I don't think the United Nations is a very good instrument for that because, this, because Russia is on the Security Council. Uh, um, and the World Bank is, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, the, the, look, international relations is anarchy. This is an old point. Uh, um, and that doesn't mean it's chaos, <laughs> but it is anarchistic. So it's a spontaneous order, so to speak. So it, what, what's amazing about the past three weeks is that, is that Biden, uh, um, with whom I don't agree on everything, and, and certain other people, Boris Johnson, for example, who says, thank God for the Ukraine, that saves me from the scandal I was involved in, <laughs> uh, um, have been able to uh, arouse the ethical um, uh, fundaments of a liberal society against, um, against this guy. I don't know. I, 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 I kind of worry that if, if Ukraine wins, it'll devolve into something, something else that's not good. But that's, yeah. that's how history goes. Um, I, I agree with that. I, I think you know, there's a fundamental um, confusion that we often get when we talk about international realm. Uh, you know, in the in the domestic world, you have Max Weber's concept of the monopoly of violence that the sure. state can impose a certain amount of order um, because it can, it's the it has a monopoly on violence. There is no monopoly on violence in the international no. order. There is the UN is not a world government. No. The UN is a very annoying institution that is organized around the principle of might makes right, right? Because yeah, the yeah. Security Council sure. um, is not, the five permanent members of the Security Council aren't there because they're the five wisest nations. <laughs> they're, they're there because they're the most powerful nations. And that's fundamentally distorting to the way we talk about, or think, yeah, yeah. a lot of people yeah. think about the UN. Yeah. World Bank, maybe it can be helpful. I mean, you know scads more than I do about development economics and that kind of thing, but probably the World Bank will be more useful when the fighting's over about how to rebuild That's Ukraine, and I don't know, I don't have any there, special all, ideas on that. There's all that frozen money from the Russian reserves in, yeah. in Western banks that could be used for. And there are all those confiscated yachts yeah. that we should be selling now um, and sending the proceeds to Ukraine. And on that note of agreement, thank you very much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you.